For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Away from me, Satan! He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. If I just touch his clothes... Daughter, your faith has healed you. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Are you the King of the Jews? It is as you say. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Crucify him! Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And with a loud cry, he gave up his spirit. And when the centurion saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He is Savior. He is King. He is risen. For several hundred years in the church, there's been a tradition as people gather on Easter where there's a call and response. Some of you are familiar with this, and we're going to do this today, and I want a great deal of enthusiasm and volume when we do, because I would say, He is risen. He is risen indeed, and that is why we gather to celebrate the greatest news of all time, the greatest event in all of human history, and we gather together not only with historically the the followers of Christ for 2,000 years, but today globally as well with people who are gathered to celebrate, and even in this moment with those who are joining us online. It's good to have you with us as well. This, what we celebrate today, is not just a religious observance. It's not just a seasonal annual celebration. It's what many of us base our hope, our faith, our life, and our eternity on. We celebrate that Jesus Christ was crucified, died, was buried, and on the third day was raised again to a resurrected and eternal life. Now, today as we celebrate that, today, this year, 2018, is a unique year of the celebration of Easter. Because today that we do celebrate this resurrection, there's a confluence of some other things in our world that are all kind of happening on this day. Uh, As you are well aware, today is April 1st, which in our culture is referred to as April Fool's Day, a day when pranks and practical practical jokes are told uh, and and played, a day when when people talk about hoaxes, half-truths, fake news as if they were true, and It's a day when it would be wise to question something if it sounds too good to be true. It's a day when it would be wise that if something sounds like it's just not quite right, to maybe think maybe it's not quite right. A day that you would just maybe be a little bit skeptical, otherwise you would be the April Fool. So today is a day when it's okay to be a little bit skeptical of some of the things that are said or reported. There's another confluence of something completely other, and this is unique in that today, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, today is a day when the Seattle Mariners have only lost one game all year long. They are currently tied for first place in the AL West, and some people are reporting, this is the year. Now, for those of you who don't follow baseball, it is true, they've only lost one game, but they've only played two. And the people who are proclaiming this is a year have said that every year for the last 20 years. So today we hear that news and that proclamation, and it is received with a great deal, at least on my part, a great deal of doubt. And I would encourage you to question the truth and the validity of that. There's a third confluence today, and that is today that the uh, Tiangong, uh, 18,000-pound Chinese space station, will be coming back to Earth on an unscheduled landing Uh, that in the next 24 hours, it is anticipated that this will crash back on the Earth. Now, those in the aerospace world do not know precisely when or precisely where. They give themselves about a 24-hour time band, but they also give themselves quite a wide bandwidth geographically. It has been reported that this will crash to Earth in the next 24 hours, and it will be somewhere between the latitudes of 43 degrees north and 43 degrees south. 
which is a wide bandwidth. I could make that kind of production, a prediction in somewhere in the circumference of the earth. Here's the good news for us. We live close to the 49th parallel, so we're set. Yeah, those of you in Florida, you're on your own. But anyway, <laughs> the chances of you being hit by this in the next 24 hours are one in one trillion, which statistically means, no exaggeration, that you are 10 million times more likely to be struck by lightning today on Easter Sunday than you are to be struck by the Tiangong space station that will crash to Earth. Now, for some of you, you hear that, and it's all very interesting, but because of the odds, it's really irrelevant. And there, I tell you these stories because today there's a story about this day, April 1st, that brings about great skepticism. It's an April Fool's Day. There's a proclamation about the Mariners that brings about a great amount of doubt. There's a story about a, a space station that brings about an interest, but maybe an irrelevance. For 2,000 years, people have celebrated the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, that he is no longer in the tomb, but he is alive. And for 2,000 years, that story has been met with great skepticism. That story has been doubted by many. That story would be one that people would say, interesting story, but completely irrelevant to me and to my life. Truth be told, some of you sitting here today or watching online may say, that's me. I'm skeptical. I like the Jesus deal. I like that story, but I'm skeptical about this whole thing. I, I have doubts, like really, a dead guy, you're saying he was dead for three days and he's alive. I have doubts about that. I'm skeptical about that. Some of you here are saying, it's an interesting story. I like celebrating every year, but it really is irrelevant to my life, everyday life. And I just want to say, if you're in one of those camps, I am so glad that you're here. You are so welcome here with your skepticism and with your doubts and with your thoughts of this irrelevance. And we want this to be a place where you can come, even with your doubts, and you can ask questions, and you can investigate, and we pray that those doubts and that skepticism would someday be a step of faith, and that which you see today as maybe being interesting but irrelevant would have someday become of intense importance to your life. So we're glad you're here. You're welcome here. We want you here. See, the story of Jesus, for most historians and scholars, secular and, and, and religious, they don't question the vast majority of the story of Jesus. It's very rare that you find any studied scholar or historian that would disagree in the historicity of Jesus, that, that there was a man named Jesus in the first century that lived in Israel, that taught, that was inspiring, that got a following, a gathering, and started a movement. This is believed widespread. In fact, anyone who doesn't believe that would be seen uh, as a little sliver on the lunatic fringe. It's like, are you kidding? You don't believe this. We all believe this. Scholars, historians would. It's believed that he was sentenced to death and execution on a Roman cross through crucifixion and that he died and was buried. That is widely held and believed. It's that next chapter where things get a little bit fuzzy. This idea that he died and was dead for three days, came back to life, walked out of a sealed tomb, and is alive today? That's what some people for 2,000 years have celebrated. That's what some people for 2,000 years have said, I, I can't believe that. That goes too far. And many of us, even in this room, would say, that is what we base our hope and our life and our eternity on. That fact, that event that Jesus didn't stay dead, that he, he came back to life, and he conquered death. 
In fact, Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and Jesus did that when he walked out of the tomb. That long before Laura Croft was ever around, there was an original tomb raider, and he changed everything when he came out of the tomb. Now hold that thought, and we'll come back to it. Two months ago, there was an article in a newspaper on the East Coast in the Baltimore Sun, and the, the headline of this article said, Goose Shot from Sky Falls Knocks Marilyn Hunter Unconscious. Okay, now you laugh. That, that's not very nice. Let me tell you the story behind this. If you want more details, you can go online. It's all there. You can fact check me on this. There was a man named Robert Mealhammer. He and some friends were out hunting on February 1st this year. Robert Mealhammer was there, probably in a blind or such. And toward the end of the day, on February 1st, there were some Canadian geese that were coming toward them, and some of his friends shot. Bam, bam, bam. And they nailed one of these geese. And this geese, at that, this goose at this point, uh, began to plummet with its final flight to Earth. And because of the laws of physics, with mass and momentum and the laws of gravity, it sent this downward trajectory of this goose and aligned it in such a way that it landed on Robert Mealhammer. And, and this goose landed on his head. Think about your Christmas turkey for just a moment. Not frozen, thawed out. Someone takes that to the top of an overpass and drops it on your head. That will hurt. This goose lands on Robert Meal Hammer's head. Irony is not lost in the fact that the goose, which was supposed to be a meal, became a hammer. And it hit him on the head and caused severe injuries to his head and to his face and knocked teeth out and knocked him out. And when they brought him to, he knew his name, but nothing else. Everything else was fuzzy. They airlifted him to a trauma and shock center there in Maryland. Now, the reason I tell you this is not to make fun of Robert Mealhammer or to, to laugh at his expense, but to illustrate a point. Because Jesus was going along in life, and the enemy decided, I'll take my best shot. Bam, bam, bam. And nailed him to a cross. And as Jesus hung dying on the cross... And as he breathed his last, it sent Jesus on a downward trajectory for three days, on perfectly aligned on death and the tomb, the grave, sin, and even hell itself. And when the full impact of that three-day trajectory happened on that first resurrection morning, when Jesus came back from the dead, he busted all the teeth out of death. He left the grave reeling, not which, knowing which way was up. He conquered even sin and even rendered hell powerless. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. It didn't do, death wasn't just defeated. It was swallowed up. It was engulfed. It was consumed in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? This is the great celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why we gather. But that very first Easter, there was not a great celebration. That very first Easter, they didn't gather, the followers of Jesus didn't gather to sing songs and to, to, to look at pretty colors and flowers and eat cookies and celebrate this. That first Easter was filled with sorrow and grief and hopelessness and despair. Jesus had come, he had taught, he had inspired, he had told them about this movement that would change the world, and they believed it. They gave up everything to follow him. But then he died, and the dream and the hope and the movement died with him, and they watched him. 
They watched him be nailed to the cross. And Matthew puts it this way. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. The disciples had all deserted him. But the women, they stayed at a distance and they watched their rabbi, their teacher, their leader breathe his last. They watched the Roman guard take his sword and pierce his side. They watched him come down off of the cross and goes on to say that they watched Joseph of Arimathea put his body in the tomb and roll the stone in front of them. There was the cross. There was the death. There was the tomb. There was the stone. There was darkness, despair, and hopelessness. All was lost. Matthew 28, 1 said, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. They didn't go there to celebrate. They didn't go there to rejoice. They didn't go there for some sunrise service. They then went there with sorrow, with grieving hearts, with heaviness, with a hopelessness, with a dark, heavy cloud that hung over them. Jesus had died, and so had everything else. So we think about this great celebration. But as, as the women were there at the tomb, they knew the reality for them and all the followers of Jesus They knew the reality for me and you and for all of the followers of Jesus today. And that reality, that heavy reality was that if the tomb is full, then our life is empty. If the tomb is still full with the body of Jesus Christ, then all the hope, all the faith, all the eternity, everything that was going to change everything, it's all empty. And the heaviness there. See, when they went to the tomb that morning, they weren't looking for Jesus. They weren't looking for him to be raised. Dead men die and they stay dead. I like how Andy Stanley put it. He said that first Easter morning, nobody was looking for no body. Nobody expected in the tomb there to be no body. There was supposed to be a body there, a dead body. That's why they went to anoint this body. They weren't thinking, well, there'll be this countdown and, 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 and Jesus is going to come back and, and, and we don't want to miss this. They weren't thinking that at all. But then something happened on that first morning. There was an earthquake, and then an angel appeared to them. And this is what he says. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. This is the news that we celebrate. This is the news that has been celebrated around this planet for 2,000 years. And this is the news that causes there to be a division for people who say, I like Jesus. I like this story. I'm not sure that I can buy this whole resurrection thing. Others say, this is what it's all about. And we celebrate and we worship Jesus because of it. This is where there's a difference, a, a, a division. And this is where, at this point, I want us today to look at this story. And I think there's two words that we need to consider when we talk about Jesus Christ being alive. The word really and the word reality. We'll start with really. Like, did it really happen? I mean, do, you, do people really believe this? And, and if so, does it really even matter? 
I mean, can we have Jesus and all of his teachings and his goodness without the resurrection? I mean, that, that just doesn't work for me in my scientific thinking and my critical thinking and in, in, in the way that I operate with things. That, that doesn't work for me. Can I still have Jesus? Does it really even matter? Because there's a little bit of a mindset that has come that maybe over time, this story is kind of like a fairy tale that just happened. It kind of came about a, a, a myth, mythological legend that developed over the years. That like Jesus, it endeared himself to these people and they wanted to keep his spirit alive and keep the memory alive. And, and so let's just keep talking about it. And over time, they just kind of started to believe that maybe, maybe he was alive and it was supposed to just be his memory, but now it became this story that's fabricated that he's actually physically alive. And for some of you, that's the sticking point. Skeptical, doubting that. And I get that. And I want to encourage you in your skepticism and doubt to investigate. And there have been some incredible books written about things that you have to really consider before you completely throw out the possibility of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and we won't get into all those. There's three really big points that you have to consider. One is the empty tomb. Because all they had to do was produce a body, and it kills the rumor, no pun intended. It stops rumor dead in its tracks. Here's the body. You can't talk about him being alive. The second one has to do with eyewitnesses, because there were up to 500 people who claimed they saw him after the resurrection. And the third one is unique in the bold, explosive uh, way that the church, this movement of Jesus, took off after his death and supposed resurrection. Because there had been other Messiah-like figures who claimed to be the one, and when they died, their whole movement died. With Jesus, after he died, and the claims that he was back to life, the thing continued on for 2,000 years. But today, I want us to look at this whole concept of the witnesses. See, the people who saw this and who recorded it never ever thought of it as being a fairy tale, never intended it to be folklore, never wanted it to be just some kind of a inspirational moral story like an Aesop's fable that you can get a lesson out of it and make you feel good. A chicken soup for your soul and here it is when life knocks you down, pick yourself back up in three days or anything like that. They saw it as factual. There's a man named Richard uh, Bauckham. He's a biblical scholar. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And one of the points that he makes in this book is that in ancient times, when people would write historical facts, they would do a, a version of footnotes. You know, like we have footnotes in your textbooks in college and school. There's footnotes that they can talk about that. In um, critical research, scientific research, there's footnotes. In nonfiction books, very often there's footnotes. What it basically says is, fact check me on this. I'm not making this up. This is real stuff. All right? You don't need footnotes in Dr. Seuss. You don't need footnotes in novels because it's just fabricated stories. Uh, Bauckham says that the writers of the events around Jesus' life would do their own version of footnotes, and the way that they would do that is that they would give names of people so that you could fact-check them. If you don't believe me, ask this person. Luke, who wrote one of the Gospels, who, by the way, was a doctor, very meticulous, at the beginning of his book, he says, I interviewed the eyewitnesses. I got the details down. I went through this stuff with a fine-tooth comb. So when he gets to the story of the resurrection, he says this in Luke. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Who told what? That the tomb was empty, that the stone was rolled, that the angel said that he's not here. 
So it was the women who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Can you believe that there was ever a time in history when a man would question the validity of what a woman would say? They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. No amens, men. Seemed to them like nonsense. Now, little side note. If you're here or watching online, and for you the whole resurrection thing, you're not sure about this, you're skeptical of this, you're filled with doubts about this, you are in good company. Jesus' closest disciples didn't believe it either. They were skeptical too. They didn't buy it. They didn't want to be the April fool. They're not going to fall for this kind of a line. And they're told this. Now what's interesting is Luke lists these ladies' names as a way of footnoting and he say, listen, I've talked with them. If you don't believe me, they're still alive. You go talk to them. Ask them. They'll tell you. They were there. Don't take my word for it. And here's an interesting little uh, bit of information that is not insignificant. That all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the gospel writers mention that the women were the first ones at the tomb on that Resurrection Sunday, on the first Easter. It was the women who were there first. Now, this is interesting. A hundred years later, there's a Greek philosopher named Celsus. Celsus was an opponent of Christianity. He was an outspoken antagonist against Christianity. He wanted to disprove Christianity. This is in the second century. And he went on record saying this, Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. <laughs> that, my friends, is sexist at best. But wait, old Celsus is not done yet. He says, and we all know women are hysterical. <laughs> I'm guessing Celsus did not have a deep, wonderful, meaningful marriage. <laughs> Maybe he did before he stated this, but I guarantee you after this statement, things went south in his home. He's saying, listen, you can't trust women. You can't trust Christianity. It's all based on these women's testimony, and they're all hysterical. We all know that. Here's the crazy thing. It's not just Celsus who believed this. In ancient times, in the first and second century, in Roman culture, in Greek culture, in Jewish culture, a, women, a woman's testimony was not seen as credible. In fact, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. But follow this. All four of the gospel writers talk about the resurrection, placing the women at the tomb first. If any of the gospel writers... We're trying to fabricate some story. We're trying to create some narrative that would somehow convince people to follow a myth that would somehow be uh, you know, persuasive enough to cause people to, to believe a hoax or a made-up story or a lie about this guy who was dead who's alive. If any of them were trying to do that, the last thing they would ever do would be to write women into the story because in their culture it would actually discredit the story. So why would they, all four of them, write the women in? 
It's one of two answers. Either Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the most stupid, dumb, idiotic, boneheaded authors of all times, or it actually happened. And they were just reporting the truth, that the women were there, and the stone was rolled away, and the tomb was empty, and the angel did say, he is risen. And then what happens is that all, all of this movement of Jesus is resurrected. So this is one of the things that sets Christianity uniquely apart from every other religion. Christianity didn't gradually evolve over centuries and decades and all this. Christianity, the movement, these followers of Christ, one day they didn't exist. Something happened, the next day it existed. It wasn't this gradual evolution. It just wasn't there and then it was. And then it exploded across the world and 2,000 years later it still goes forward. It's what happened on that day. See this idea that, well, can't we just have Jesus without the resurrection? You take the death on the cross and the, the resurrection of Jesus in the empty tomb away from Christianity, and you don't have anything left. Oh, you've got some inspirational writings, and you've got some, some good chicken soup for your soul, and some great things to, to, to think about, but not anything to base your life, your hope, and your eternity on. In fact, the apostle Paul said, listen, 1 Corinthians 15, he goes into this whole thing. He says, if there's not a resurrection from the dead, then Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. And then he does this if-then. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, and then he just goes off. And that means anything that has to do with faith, anything you grew up listening to, anything in church, it's all a bunch of lies. Your pastors have lied to you. Your Sunday school teachers lied to you. Your CCD leaders, your VBS leaders, your whatever initial leaders you had, your grandmother, they're all lie. it's all a lie if, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. It says, and furthermore, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, anyone else who has died, they're lost and they're gone. It's hopeless. And he just goes on talking about all this. He says, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith, whatever faith you might have, is futile and you are still in your sins. And he just lists us off. He says, you don't have the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You don't have anything. Christianity is based on this event. And he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is alive. And that changes everything. You see, for 2,000 years, people have pointed back and said, this isn't just something Jesus did. This is something that he's doing. And there's a song that sometimes we'll sing around here, and there's a line, and it says, the resurrected king is resurrecting me is doing this transformation in my life, is bringing life into me. And this is where we see that the Easter story and the resurrection of Jesus is not just an interesting story to revisit once a year. It's not just an inspiring story to give you a little bit of moral up boost and, you know, pick me up. This is a powerful, life-changing story. And it's of supreme, eternal, and personal importance. So let's talk about that other word, the reality. I mean, is this relevant to me at all? I mean, what, what's about the reality of the resurrection for me? And in the remainder of our time, I just want to real quickly tell you why I think this is reality for us and impacts us as individuals. Now, this I know about every single one of you. I don't know all your names. I don't know your stories. But this I know that we all have these things in common here in this room, including me. Every single one of us 
This I know. If you live long enough, you will inevitably sin. Okay, I met with some skepticism on that one. You're questioning that. Ask your families. You've already met your quota for the day. We will all sin. This isn't that big of a... You're all like... Learn new things in church all the time. Okay. If you live long enough, you will inevitably sin. The second thing, if you live long enough, eventually you'll die. Happy Easter. There you go. Okay. That's just the truth. We don't like to think about it, but the reality is every single one of us sin, and there will come a day that every single one of us will die. We try to not think about it. We try to put it out of our mind. We try to focus on everything else. We try to delay it, but it's the truth. It's the fact that we all sin. And you know that. There, I don't think there's anyone in here brash and bold enough in their right mind to say, I'm perfect, I've never sinned, and I never will. Because if you have any family, they'll just kind of dismiss that as, as an April Fool's joke anyway. We've all sinned. We've all made mistakes. We've all done things we wish we wouldn't have. We've all got consequences because of that and scars and relational issues and, and pain that we deal with because of those things, regrets that we have, shame that we carry, guilt around because of all these things. And so many times we try to cover that up. We try to ignore that. And all of this guilt and all this shame and all these consequences just bury us in this heaviness as we're trying to hide it. And it becomes this, this hiding shell around us where we're not even truthful with ourselves. And the death and the, and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the tomb of our shame becomes consumed, swallowed up in the forgiveness, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It's so many times we have our shame and our guilt and all of this stuff, and we try to handle it ourselves. The reality is we have sinned, and our sin separates us from a holy God. So we try to make up for it. Think, well, I'll just do some good deeds. I'll, I'll kind of watch my P's and Q's. I'll, I'll do some nice things, give a little bit here and there, and maybe that will offset my bad deeds. In fact, <laughs> the fact that some of you are here today is because you're trying to get notches in the plus column. That's why you're here. And, and I'll just tell you, that's wonderful. We'll report into heaven. Give them the, the green light. You were here. You made it. Got your attendance in for the year. What have you. You're trying to get these little notches on the plus column. And you do all these things to try to figure this out so that you can someday stand before the Lord and be right with him and be good enough. Here's the only problem. How do you know when you've ever done enough? Will you ever know, okay, have my, have my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds? And is it possible that you might be prone to the human condition of overestimating your own goodness and underestimating the weight of your own sin? Is that possible? See, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of that uncertainty can be dealt with. Because if you're going to do it on your own, you'll never be able to know for sure if you've been good enough. But Jesus says, you don't have to do that. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. But now he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, that's our, our, uh, what we have in common, and after that to face judgment, so Christ sacri was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation, hope, redemption, life to those who are waiting for him. 
See, our sin separates us from God, but God in his love for us, a just, holy God that says sin must be punished, said, I will provide a way so that you don't have to pay for this yourself, that your guilt, your penalty can be paid by someone else. And Jesus paid the penalty for my sin and for your sin as he hung on the cross. And he says, and you don't have to do it yourself. Because I did that to take away the sins of many. Will you be one of them? He'll come again. Will you be waiting for that? See, if that was the only reality of the resurrection, that would be enough for us to celebrate for all of eternity. That our sins have been taken care of, our guilt has been removed, our punishment has been paid by someone else, and we've been given freedom and forgiveness because of the love of God as he sends his son, Jesus Christ. But there's more than that even. And that is that the, the chains of our despair are swallowed up with hope. Because it doesn't take very long to look around at our life, our, our country, our world, and be filled with despair. I mean, and you don't even have to go there. Some of us look in our own families, and you don't even have to go there. Some of us look in our own marriages, you don't even have to go there. Some of us look honestly within our own hearts, and we're filled with despair at our own failings, our own motives, our, when we're honest with the darkness within us. And we're filled with this despair. And Jesus, his death and his resurrection, takes the despair and he engulfs it and swallows it up with hope. See, the story of the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb is a story that demonstrates that God can take the very worst, the the most desperate situation of all and redeem it and turn it around to bring good and hope out of it. The story of the cross and the empty tomb is a story of victory that rises out of defeat. It's a story of strength that comes from weakness. It's a story of light that comes out of the darkness. It's a story of life that comes back from death. It's a story of hope that comes out of despair. One of my favorite Easter verses of all is found in 1 Peter, where it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's given a new birth, a chance to start over, a brand new beginning with a living hope, not an old hope, not an expired hope, not an outdated hope, not a limited hope, one that's new every single day. And it's living hope because it's not just what we hope for, but who we hope in. And he is the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. That's the hope we have. And what's even greater is that it's a living hope, not just for our days here on this earth. In fact, in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if we have hope just for this life, we're to be pitied more than all men. It's a hope that goes beyond our days here on this earth. It's a hope that goes beyond the grave. On Friday, uh, just two days ago, I got a phone call here from a family in our church husband is dying in his last days, last hours, asked if I would come out to the house, have a word of prayer, read some scripture. So Friday afternoon, I went to the house, and as I was coming in the house, the hospice nurses were coming out, and they really said, you know, a day or two, maybe. And I went to his bedside. He'd been battling cancer for a couple years. And it's at the point where he couldn't even speak, but his eyes were open. He could hear And I read Psalm 23 to him, that great passage, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And I prayed with him. 
and I reassured him of the hope of the resurrection, that it is a hope that Jesus will walk with us throughout this life and through death and into all of eternity. And then for his family, the ones that were there, prayed for them, reminded them of the hope of the resurrection, that with our trust in Jesus, they'll see dad again, they'll see their husband again, they'll spend eternity not only with him, but with Jesus. And some of you may say, Bob, that's just an empty message to bring hope to a man in his dying hours. Some of you may say, those are empty words to try to encourage a family that's grieving. And I will say this. If the tomb of Jesus Christ is full, I would agree. There would be no hope. If the tomb of Jesus Christ is full, the words about an afterlife are empty. But if the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty, there's the full confidence and the full hope and the full assurance of Jesus walking with us through these days here on earth and into eternity. A hope that goes beyond the grave. And not only that, but the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ ensures that the nights of our weakness are swallowed up in power. Because life is difficult. I don't ever want to sell you a bill of goods. I'm not saying you come to Jesus and everything's always easy. Life is hard. There's obstacles. There's challenges. There's struggles. There's difficulties in, in your own life, in your relational world, in your work world, in your financial world. Life is hard. But you were never intended to go it alone. And Paul writes these great words to the church in Ephesus when he says, God's incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. You see what that's saying? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that God has for us. It's the resurrection power that we can live in. When we begin to understand that, we begin to see why this is not just an event in history that we celebrate. It's not just a day once a year that we come together and sing. This is the reality. This is beyond an interesting story. It's beyond something that's, that's maybe interesting but irrelevant. And it's beyond something that's just a little bit inspiring. It's life-changing to have that in our lives, to have that be our story. Interesting little thought. All the significant details surrounding the death of Jesus happened in the dark. In the garden tomb, when he prays that prayer of anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's dark. When Judas comes with the guards to betray him with a kiss, it's dark. When he's arrested there and put in chains, it's dark. When he's tried, it's dark. As he's hanging on the cross, the scripture says from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon, the whole face of the earth went dark as they placed him in the tomb and rolled the stone across the entrance of the tomb. It was dark. It's a spiritual darkness, a physical darkness, an emotional darkness. It was the reality of darkness and death, the reality of darkness and death for his followers. Darkness and death for the world. But on the first day of the week, a new week, at dawn, a new day, something happened that changed everything. 
that that reality was swallowed up and there was a new reality. The reality of light and life. The reality of light and life for his followers. The reality of light and life for the world. The reality of light and life for us to be able to experience and live in the resurrection reality of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy, we read these words, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news. Here's the reality of this. If the tomb is full, our lives, our hope, and our eternity is empty. If the tomb is empty, our lives, our hope, and our eternity are full. Full of forgiveness, full of grace, full of love from our Father, full of hope for these days and for eternity, full of resurrection power for whatever we face, full of light, full of life, full of the resurrection reality. That's why we celebrate this. That's why it's a reality that's relevant to each one of us. Because it's not just a historical story. It can be our story. Now I'm going to ask you to just bow your head. And today, if you want that to be your story, right now, if you just quietly pray, there's nothing magical about these words, but just to pray something along this line, Jesus, I believe that you are alive that you were raised from the dead. And I believe that you were crucified to pay for my sin. And I admit I need forgiveness. And I ask that you would be my forgiver. And because of the empty tomb, I want your hope. Would you be the leader of my life? May I live in the resurrection power, in the reality every single day. May this be my story. I pray this in your name. Amen.